This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we celebrate the London Festival of Architecture. We talk to director Rosa Regina about its significance. Photographer and filmmaker Jim Stevenson takes us through his approach to documenting the built environment. And we discuss an exhibition bringing photographs of Ivan Ivanov's residential works into a gallery space. Plus, Katie Trigeddon discusses her latest book on repair and reuse. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. London's Festival of Architecture is now on. And for the month of June, the UK capital will be thriving with a number of special events, exhibitions and talks on the subject. This year's theme, In Common, celebrates what our shared values are and explores where we might not see eye to eye. Festival director Rosa Regina joined us down the line to share what we might expect from this year's edition. So we see the festival being really kind of at the intersection of the industry community and also kind of academia, uh, really uh, providing a framework for people to come together, discuss their ideas about um, the city and environment they live in, but and also hopefully uh, have tools and means to contribute to the wider change. So by no means it's an industry uh, kind of isolated event and we are very proud to be working uh, london-wide uh, both with kind of professionals from our own the industry but also with people who perhaps never encountered uh, architectural built environment sector in that way what you can see is basically anything from walking tours to workshops exhibitions performances film screenings but also um kind of talks and debates and architectural interventions. So really using the city as a stage for the festival. So some things might be in kind of more expected places, so kind of cultural institutions, galleries, uh, et cetera. But then also some things might be uh, on your daily walk uh, to your local market or uh, to work. So, So we quite... We see importance of working with both extraordinary and ordinary spaces in a way to celebrate them and uh, and stage them as part uh, of the festival. So it's by no means only about shiny skyscrapers in central London. It's about all of those spaces that matter to us as individuals and Londoners. We hope uh, we do achieve to leave a significant uh, legacy to London. On one hand, yes, it's all about uh, celebration of good practice. It's celebration of uh, London as a global hub for architecture. But equally important, it's about providing a space where we all are empowered to dream big and and think creatively and put our pens out and uh, think about how a road that maybe matters to us, uh, but not everybody in London knows it could be looking if it was more green or if it was more pedestrian friendly or if, if it was completely serving different purpose that maybe it is at the moment. Rosa Regina, director of the London Festival of Architecture there. Showing as part of this year's London Festival of Architecture is an exhibition called The Architect Has Left the Building. Taking place at the Royal Institute of British Architects, also known as REBA, the film installation finds joy and intimacy in the professional archives of photographer and filmmaker Jim Stevenson. Presented as a dual-screen film, it documents the ways in which people take over a building and make it their own. Both humorous and humanist in approach, it offers a welcome antidote to the perfect imagery of architectural projects. 
it also offers viewers a space to pause and imagine the scenes and lives presented before them. Jim Stevenson joined us in the studio to tell this show's producer, Maylee Evans, a little more. The Architect has Left a Building is a, is a film installation that is made up of archive footage that we've been filming buildings for, you know, 15 years. Most of the work we do is commissioned by architects. So they're, they're narrative films. They have interviews with people that use the building and the architects describing why the building looks like it does, how it works and things. The Architect has Left the Building is slightly different because we have collated a lot of that footage but we've extended it we've made the individual shots longer and it's kind of a people watching exercise in video so it's two massive huge larger than life screens and seven speakers that surround you and we've got this amazing soundscape and you're kind of fully immersed and you can just sit there the whole idea is that you sort of people watch, you watch how people use buildings. These are sort of quite reasonably well-known buildings. You can watch how people explore them or misuse them sometimes. And it's kind of full of little pockets of, of drama and peace and tranquility and activity and energy and all of the different things that life makes up. Often I think we see a lot of architectural photos that completely remove people from just the surroundings. We don't see any people interacting with spaces or evidence of human life even. What makes you so interested in them? Architecture has a tradition of photographing buildings, particularly photographing buildings, asking people to leave so you can photograph it empty. And that's like a really common thing when you're photographing for an architect. They'll ask you to go in before the people arrive, shoot it at six in the morning or do it on a Sunday or something. And it just never made sense to me. When I was in my early 20s, I worked in architecture offices where buildings were being designed and we just talked constantly about how people would use it and how we're designing for scale and we're designing for use. And then we'd photograph them completely empty. So architecture kind of becomes this kind of edifice, this, it becomes this sort of sculptural element. And it, it really just never made sense to me. So in my photography and in my film work, we try really hard to show spaces occupied and show spaces used. If a building is really beautifully laid out, the elevation is beautifully composed and the floor plans work perfectly, the materials are all lovely and beautiful and fit in with their surroundings and there's lovely textures, but nobody ever goes there, is it a good building? With our work, we try to pull back a bit, show people, and, and rather than architecture being this sculptural edifice it is actually the stage set for all the life that happens in front of it because actually we all interact with it on a daily basis. Why do you think so many architects are keen to have their buildings shown empty? Is it like an aspirational thing? Is it so that people looking can imagine themselves in it? Is there something else at play? I think there's a lot of things at play. Sometimes it is a privacy thing and there's a very practical reason for not having people in there. You know, that, and that makes total sense. We were recently asked to photograph uh, an NHS building that was for people with eating disorders. And obviously we wouldn't photograph that with people in. But sometimes when it's a public building and the public are going to be using it, we're asked to not have people in the images. And there's a lot of layers to why that's requested. I think some architects think it's more pure. If you can just see the form of the building, it's more pure. But it's changing a lot now. So what's happening in the last sort of 10 years or so is architects are becoming much more interested in showing their buildings in use. And that's great because that's what we're really interested in as well. What 
what are the interactions or disruptions from this very neat visual version of, of a building that, that you see in, in this film and, and that you've witnessed in your, in your work over the years? The genesis of the show was we were filming a school in Hackney, a school and a housing project in Hackney, and there's a bench outside the school gates where all of the parents and the carers queue up to collect their children at the end of the day and they all sit on the bench and there's all these lovely human interactions and sometimes you get like one person sitting on their own sometimes there'll be a group of three people who you can sort of tell they meet up every day there to collect their kids and lots of different lovely interactions going on we were filming it from across the road everyone knew we were there and we were We'd been talking to people all day, but we were across the road filming it, getting this long shot of this bench, and the camera wasn't moving. We were just watching people coming and going, and you saw every single interaction you could imagine. There were people who were the drivers going past with road rage. There were people sitting quietly reading. There were people animated and laughing and joking. There were small little arguments going on, and we were watching it thinking, we can just make 100 stories out of this one shot. We tweeted a screenshot of this and, and said we could have made a five minute film just on this one shot and then that's where the show all started from that was the genesis for the whole thing so the interaction sometimes they're things that you expect we've got great shots of Cambridge Mosque where you see people coming in to pray sometimes they're things that you wouldn't expect and people are uh, misusing the building in a polite way misusing the building so it, it kind of it's really every element of life happens in hopefully in this 30 minute film This way of filmmaking of these, you know, static shots, it feels very meditative, it feels very slow, rather than rushing through and trying to capture and a whole building and everything about it, it feels very purposeful, it feels very considered. Do you find that's just kind of how you work naturally or this was maybe a shift for yourself and how you how you work? It is kind of how we work naturally. The curator at the RBA who invited us to put together the show said that when he watches the films that we make for architects, he said he felt like there was another, better film trying to get out. And I think he's let us stretch our legs a bit. And and Sophia, who's co-edited the, the show with me, we kind of got the opportunity to stretch our legs a little bit on that. I'm not naturally a very slow, calm person. I like rushing around and doing lots of things. But when I work, I really slow down. If it's safe and socially acceptable, I'll take my shoes off. And do, basically, I'll do everything I can to slow, physically slow down. I think people are surprised when we do a shoot and it lasts for eight, ten hours that we hardly use the camera. Most of the time it's just watching two things. It's watching people moving around the space and interacting with one another in the space and it's watching light and how light moves around the space and interacts with the building. We're just observing and observing and observing and, and then we just pick the time to turn the camera on, basically. I mean, a camera, like for a photograph, it might be one 125th of a second that the shutter goes for so that means that over the course of eight hours we might only be using the camera for one second 125 pictures at one 125th of a second so the rest of the time is just observing and being slow and calm it does feel meditative it is kind of a, a mental health thing for us as well it's very calm and peaceful What do you find yourself yeah, noticing when you encounter a new space or building? I think it's different with every building we do. I mean, a lot of it's light. 
By that I mean natural light, so how the sun reaches the walls and how it touches the materials and what it does to the materials when it touches it and how it illuminates a space is really fascinating. Everyone's been into a building that's got beautiful light and it makes the whole space feel airy and comfortable. So we're looking for that a lot of the time. Light is kind of the basis of photography. If there's no light, then there's nothing to photograph. The other thing is I really enjoy finding spaces that have room to, to accommodate lots of different uses. Buildings like a library really should just do one thing. It should be there for you to study and read books and, and that. But we recently shot a library in Kingston that is half library, half dance studio. So you can be sat there reading books and studying, looking out over the staircase and there's ballet dancers in the staircase practicing. So I really enjoy that idea that spaces actually can be used for many different things because really architecture is just a series of, of rooms. It's much more than that, of course, but at its most basic form, it's a series of different spaces. So if you can allow people to use those spaces in different ways and not tell them, no, you can't do that, you mustn't do that. I hate seeing signs that say no ball games or something like that. So if you can allow people just to, to, to explore the space and not just one type of person, you know, you have to be appreciative that people of different age groups will want to use space in different ways. People from different cultures will want to use it in different ways. So if you can find ways to, to create space that can be adopted by loads of different people and they can feel home there, that's kind of what we're looking for. There's an architect called Sarah Featherstone who calls it baggy space, which I think is a really beautiful way of putting it, where there's room for people to kind of invent their own activity. You'd said that your motivation has always been to use photography as a tool to investigate architecture. So what are you investigating at the moment or the question maybe that's in your mind these days? I switched from designing buildings to documenting them. And in that switch, after a few months of doing it, I realised I didn't ever want to design buildings. I just wanted to investigate them. And it's different for every building. Right now, I'm really enjoying investigating how people use space, specifically I'm interested in how people misuse space. And by misuse space, I don't mean they're doing anything illegal or anything dodgy. I just mean that they're just making it their own a little bit. I really love it when you go to a housing project, for instance, like a block of flats, and there's chalk drawings that kids have done on the pavement. That's a misuse of space. Pavement isn't for drawing on, but it's brilliant and beautiful because it shows that people feel at home there and they feel like it's theirs so they can start putting their mark on it. So that's the kind of thing I'm looking for now and I'm a nightmare to go on holiday with because I'm just pointing that kind of stuff out all the time. As an architect I think you can control so much. You can control how the rooms are laid out, you can control the materials that are being used, the scale and the massing and how it looks from the street. But then once you've handed it over and the people have come in, you can't control that. And if you can embed that lack of control at the design stage and be open to that lack of control, then maybe the buildings become these sort of looser buildings that, that, that people can, can use in their own way and make, make their home. Jim Stevenson there, in conversation with Maylee Evans. And the soundscape you heard woven in, well, that's from collaborator Simon James. The exhibition, The Architect Has Left the Building, is on at the Royal Institute of British Architects until the 12th of August. We're taking a brief break from the London Festival of Architecture to consider the idea of reuse and repair. While this might not sound glamorous, they are both essential practices for designers and industry leaders wanting to reduce their impact on the planet. 
journalist and podcaster Katie Trigeddon has been writing about circular design for years. The model keeps existing materials in use for as long as possible and is now becoming the norm. Her latest book, Broken, Mending and Repair in a Throwaway World, spotlights designers, makers and creatives who are disrupting the traditional take-make-waste model. Katie came by our studio to speak with Monocle's Lillian Fawcett, who began by asking Katie if she is hopeful that repair and reuse will win out against the demand for newness. I don't think we have much choice. If you look at the linear economy or the take-make-waste economy, as it's sometimes described, we're running out of things to take out of the earth. I think 10 out of the 12 rare earth materials that are commonly used in a mobile phone are set to dry up in the next decade. The middle part is make, and obviously we produce carbon every time we make something, and we need to hit peak carbon by next year (laughs) to hit the Paris climate change agreements. And then we're running out of space to put our waste. So this sort of linear model is running out of time. So we need to move to a more circular economy. I'm hoping (laughs) that that means we will. I talk a lot about defiant hope and stubborn optimism. And I think at least, well, probably most of my work is staying hopeful and and encouraging other people to be hopeful as well, because if we don't believe that we can change something, then we won't. So I think hope is the precursor to change. So whilst it's difficult on some days, I do think it's incredibly important. The foreword to Broken is written by Jay Blades from The Repair Shop, which is a very popular BBC show where people will bring in an item that's kind of broken or just a bit worn out, you know, an old teddy bear, a rocking horse or precious kind of family heirloom and it gets repaired. I will admit that I have cried at it quite a few times (laughs) when they present the person with their item at the end and it's just so wonderful. Do you think that repair is becoming more popular, that there's more interest in repair and that it's kind of going mainstream? Yeah, and it's interesting because I actually wrote my, I did a master's 2017 to 2019 and I wrote my dissertation on repair and whether we could make it go mainstream. And I think for a long time, the visible mending movement has been somewhat of a middle class privileged position, you know, to wear an item of clothing that is visibly mended is not something that is accessible or socially appropriate for everybody, particularly if you've grown up in poverty. But I think one of the things the repair shop is changing and one of the reasons I've known Jay for a long time so one of the reasons I asked him to write the forward was because I think the repair shop really is kind of normalizing repair and mending and showing that it's not always done out of poverty or necessity but it can also be done because an object is precious to you or or because you care about the environment and so I hoped that by involving Jay in the book I might get some of the messages in the book out to a wider audience. You mentioned visible repair, which is something we're going to come back to later. But some technology and some devices that we buy now, it's almost impossible to repair them. And you talk in the book about planned obsolescence. What's meant by planned obsolescence and is there and can anything be done about it? Yeah, so it's a it's a controversial term and a lot of manufacturers will deny that it's a thing. <laughs> but planned obsolescence is the idea of rendering an object or a product obsolete within a set period of time. So the ways they do that are they stop making spare parts, batteries may or may not be programmed to run out faster after a certain amount of time and things like stylistic changes so if they bring out a new phone that looks different every six months, yours starts looking kind of uncool in bunny ears very quickly and so all of these are ploys that are sort of used by big manufacturers to make you repair uh, a product or an object more often than you actually need to 
And there are lots of things that can be done about that. And, and many of them are legal and, and structural. So they are starting to bring in laws in certain parts of Europe against planned obsolescence. It's just quite difficult to prove that it's happening. And so another thing that I think is really important is things like the right to repair legislation, which came in uh, the summer before last, doesn't go far enough, but it mandates that manufacturers need to provide spare parts. They need to provide repair manuals. They need to allow you to open up the back of something to get in to fix it. So those changes are coming, which is heartening to see, but we need a lot more of them. Let's talk about some of the designers and makers uh, that you highlight in your book then. And the first chapter is called Repair as a Restoration of Function because as you write about, there are many different ways of repairing and reasons that we might repair something and they're not all related to restoring it to its original function. But the first chapter is about that. And you write about a woman called Jane Nigelhuntig. She's an Irish inventor and the founder of Sugru, which is a kind of moldable glue. Can you talk a bit more about her? Yeah, she's amazing. I've actually got to know Jane quite well since I since I wrote the book, so it's been really fun to hear more about her story. But she went to, I think, the Royal College of Art and was really interested in sustainability. And she was on a product design course and sort of fairly shortly into the course, she realised that she could end up becoming part of the problem just by designing and making more and more products. Luckily, her lecturers encouraged her to really kind of dig into and explore that fear Um, and she started experimenting with a material that she wanted to make something cool out of and brought some of it home and just started fixing things around the house and her then partner now husband said Jane what if the answer you're looking for is not that you're going to design something that will save the planet but that you will design something that will make everybody a designer and everybody a repairer so that they can save the planet. And so they developed this moldable glue, which is it's a bit like plasticine when you get it out of the packet and you can do all sorts of things with it, but it sets hard, it sets like glue. And she said a big part of her job then was about not teaching people how to use it, but kind of inspiring them. And she set up this whole community of Sugru users all over the world to share their mens. And, you know, people have used it to do everything from fixing holes in a mosquito net to customising things to help with their disabilities. And it's just such a a flexible, interesting product that enables you to mend almost anything with a bit of creativity and a bit of fun and a bit of playfulness, which I think is a really important part of... I think the environmentalism movement can take itself a bit too seriously sometimes and there's a lot of guilt and shaming going on. And I think actually we need to inspire people to become part of this and show them that it can be kind of fun and playful it isn't all hair shirt it's accessible as well isn't it and it's kind of open to everyone to mold how they need it and would like to use it one of my favorite examples of how it's been used is a customer in ireland using sugru to fashion a foot for a prosthetic leg for a chicken that had been injured (laughs) in a fox attack and unfortunately we couldn't get good enough pictures of that to put it in the book but yeah it's absolutely brilliant that's fantastic and the, the photos in the book are beautiful by the way i have to say Later chapter is repair as storytelling. And this is all about um, repairing items in a way that is visible in a way that kind of tells you something about their life up until that point, not trying to repair them as if they've never been broken. And uh, one of the designers I want to talk about was Hans Tan, who's a designer, maker and curator from Singapore. Yeah, so Hans um, curated an exhibition called R is for Repair, originally in Singapore, and then another version of it showed as part of London Design Festival. And what he wanted to do was pair designers with members of the public, and members of the public brought in an object 
that needed to be repaired and he said he didn't want them to do it in a way that was quote-unquote sustainable because there's a sense that sustainable is, you know, again, that guilt and that shame and that heavy feeling. He wanted them instead to turn the object into something that was better than it was before. So one of my favourite examples is a young lady who had just a $5 watch that her parents had bought her um, and she'd already repaired the strap many times and so eventually she bought a new one, exactly the same because it had that memory but she didn't want to throw away the the face of the watch because it was still perfectly functional and it had this sentimental value because her parents had bought it for her. And so the designers who were given that object put it into a sort of walnut cube with little brass pins at the 12, 3, 6 and 9 point to create this beautiful, really high-value bedside clock. And I think it's such an interesting example of taking something that cost $5 that was essentially worthless and it was designed for that take-make-waste economy to throw away. And yet because it had sentimental value, because it mattered to her, and I think one of the things that's quite interesting with repair is it's that personal relationship with an object that encourages its longevity. She wanted it turned into into something else and the result is absolutely beautiful. And just finally, I'm sure many designers and makers will read and enjoy your book and take inspiration from it for their own work. But for the kind of average consumer who wants to incorporate repair into their own life, what would be your advice? So I I am this person. It's really funny. Since I've written this book, people assume I have repair skills. And I do not. (laughs) My family keeps sending me clothes to mend. And I'm just like, just because I write about this stuff doesn't mean I know. But you know what? The reasons people say they don't mend are uh, time, money and skills. And in some cases, that's absolutely valid, right? But I think a simple running stitch, if you can thread a needle and thread, a running stitch is literally just up, down, up, down, up, down. And that is a way of attaching two pieces of material to each other. So if you've got a hole in something and you can put a little patch behind it and then you can do up, down, up, down, up, down, you can mend clothes. And there are loads of workshops now you can go on to develop those skills further. But I think, or, you know, you can take things along to a local repair cafe or find a local seamstress. There are lots and lots of ways now to get involved in mending. But I think the big thing I hope is... Not even so much that, but just that there's a shift in the culture and we start valuing that craft of use, that pattern of age, you know, that that increased emotional relationship you have with an object when you've repaired it or had it repaired. So I hope that people will stop seeing a breakage as the end of the life as an of an object, but just a, a moment in its journey and, and that it can then go on to be mended or to be turned into something else or that it can sort of it can continue living after that moment. Katie Tregeddon there in conversation with Monocle's Lillian Fawcett. Katie's book, Broken, Mending and Repair in a Throwaway World, is published by Ludion and available at all good bookstores now. Finally on today's show, we return to coverage of the London Festival of Architecture and a discussion about Bulgarian-born Australian architect Ivan Ivanov. Active from the 1950s until the 1980s, Ivanov spent most of his career working in Perth, Western Australia, where he developed an expressive style that used concrete blocks to play with light and shadow. It's work that photographer Jack Lovell has documented extensively and is showing at Modernity, a gallery in West London which specialises in the collection and sale of rare Nordic mid-century furniture. The exhibition, called Australia's Most Unique Modernist Architect, Ivan Ivanov, is the perfect marriage of photography and mid-century architecture and design. To find out more, I caught up with Jack to discuss his work and Seb Holt, Modernity's UK director. 
I grew up in one of the Ivanov homes, and that is my connection to this project. So in 2016, I set about to start documenting the remaining Ivanov homes um, and basically create an updated archive of the work. Um, at that point in time, there was no current archive. Over the years, unfortunately, a number of the homes have been demolished, so there's still only you know a small handful left. And so I had, um, yeah, basically been systematically going through and photographing as many of them as possible over the past several years. You grew up in one, but what, what's the appeal of it? Why, why are people enamoured by them? The homes themselves, uh, aesthetically, are very unique. They've got these sort of like brutalist sort of European sensibilities, yet they're found in the suburbs of the world's most isolated city, being Perth. Australia. His sort of main material that he used was the concrete Besser block and that became one of his sort of signature materials that he worked with. The homes are very striking, uh, particularly the facades. Um, he had these sort of big plots of land that he could work with. So they have these big, expansive, uh, quite intricately detailed facades. It's rare even these days that you can find an architect who's sort of so adept to both the external and interior facets of his work. Ivanov seemed to master both of them and just sort of quietly worked in Perth over a three-decade-plus career creating these homes. You mentioned he quietly works, and I think that is sort of key information. This is a an architect who's sort of flown under the radar, and I think your, your project documenting them with photographs has really helped to, to bring them to the fore. So you're showing the work at the London Festival of Architecture at Modernity, uh, which has a gallery space in London. Seb's here with us <laughs> with us now. Seb, tell us who you are in a, in a sentence and, and a little bit of Modernity Gallery. So I started Modernity Gallery in London about three years ago. Um, setting up a place in Cavendish Square, which was kind of a um, project space where we showed our works. Um, but the original gallery started in '98 in Stockholm in Sweden, and it specialises in showing 20th century collectible design. So it's we're, we're talking outstanding yep. works from, from the mid century. Yeah, outstanding works from the mid century, but Nordic. So we've set it up in a way that you can move into any of the rooms. Um, sort of like a kind of homage to 20th century design. Amazing. And you said yeah. move into any of the rooms, and that's yes. sort of what Jack's done in a way. I know yes. he set up his photographs uh, on the top floor of, of your London gallery. Yeah. We've got mid-century architecture with Jack. We've got, you know, mid-century furniture and, and I guess, homewares and, yeah. and art with you. What makes the mid-century still so appealing today? Why why are we intent on documenting it and intent on still having it in our homes? The real appeal is the longevity of the, the work. There were designers and then there were cabinet makers. So you would have pieces made by hand uh, by a cabinet maker and they'd be extremely well designed to suit their purpose, but then they'd be really well made as well, which is very different to what you have today. So these pieces can really last forever. And it's very easy to restore the works as well. So in a way, you could pass them from generation to generation, changing fabrics, uh, reupholstering, redoing the wood, etc. And that can really make them last. And you see that they still look quite contemporary in a way today because these people were pioneers of design in their fields. And a lot of what you see today in contemporary design is sort of copies of mid-century modernist design. So in a way, it's better to get the originals if you can afford them <laughs> um, and they're, they're really a worthy investment. So I think people are starting to feel that it's good to invest in uh, mid-century pieces. These are things that are going to last and I think you kind of yeah. hit it on the head there. Yeah. Like They're handcrafted, they're skilled craftsmen. Yeah. Ivanov sort of had that in his work. We've got that in the furniture here. I mean, are you seeing that in Ivanov's body of work that it's still relevant today in the same way that perhaps this furniture holds up and stands the test of time? Is the, is the architecture holding up as well? 
Most definitely. I've, I've stood in front of and photographed over 25 of these remaining homes and they really have stood the test of time. You're looking at homes that are 60, 70 plus years old and still to this day through his use of materials, the sort of delicate nature, the craftsmanship that went into the building of the homes, the consideration as well and collaboration between you know both his tradespeople and him as a, as a practising architect. When I have photographed them, I've really tried to sort of keep the images quite true to form and we haven't doctored them or sort of tried to hide that. I want it to look like a house that is 60 or 70 years old. I think people are really quite enamoured with it because there's a lot of sort of mass production and and sort of people are really kind of looking back to the classics and sort of the masters and people that went before us. With the gallery, I think it's it's a really lovely fit to sort of see the works. Um, within in situ with these sort of beautiful Scandinavian pieces and obviously there's that European connection. Ivanov was a Bulgarian born architect that trained in Germany but he just so happened to end up in Perth of all places. I like that connection and, and seeing the works in situ as well, that feeling of actually almost being inside these homes is quite nice. How does showing these sort of photographs or showing you know artwork more generally in, in your space help to enhance the work that you're doing? No one lives without art so in a way it makes sense to show proper art in a space. We're very good at mainly furniture and design and textiles. We have a small collection of art, but our specialty is design. So to bring in other galleries and to bring in other artists and photographers' work really enhances the space. In a way, you would never live with just one thing. So you'd never live with just mid-century design. You would have a mix of things. So also bringing in some contemporary photography, but of mid-century work actually really enhances the, the pieces and I guess enhances what you're doing too. If you're designing a home, are there a couple of key things that you're you're going to take from him and, and put into your own, own place and space? Ultimately, his homes were always designed with the end goal of how people live in the spaces and how people connect with one another. One of the sort of the key features is that at any given time, wherever you were standing in the house, particularly in the main living areas, you could actually sort of always keep an eye, like eye level connection with sort of other people in the home. Um, so I think that idea of sort of connectivity, not isolation, but people actually, you know, how they live and enjoy these spaces. I think you can really see that in the work. It was very progressive in terms of the layouts and sort of how the home would function. Um, Another key thing about his work, and I guess it depends on the climate that you live in, but this sort of indoor-outdoor connection and how people connect with the outside and sort of nature itself, that was sort of uh, uh, critical to kind of the design of these homes and how he, you know, intended people to live. Ultimately, it was, you know, always driven by how people were going to experience these spaces and, you know, how they were going to sort of connect with one another. Jack Lovell, and before that, Seb Holt. If that chat has piqued your interest, I'll be in conversation with Seb and Jack about Ivan Ivanov on the 14th of June at Modernity Gallery in London. And that's all for today's show. The London Festival of Architecture is on until the 30th of June, but some of its programming, like Jim Stevenson's exhibition, has a longer run. So check out londonfestivalofarchitecture.org. And for more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans. She edited the show with assistance from Steph Chungu and Callum McLean. I'm Nick Manese, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. Listening.